I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Philosophy of Charles Taylor. You walk into a room, you're in a bad mood, and they're having a wonderful party. Now, of course, you could make you even in a worse mood, but very often you find your spirits lifted. So such a thing as the kind of atmosphere of the party is something we recognize. You can't keep it out. It sort of you, it invades you. It takes you over. Well, imagine a view of the universe, which is what the view of the universe is enchanted, where there are powers of this kind in things, in spirits of the woods or in things like relics, right, that, that, that emanate a certain power and can, in a certain sense, take you over and change you because there's no way of stopping it. It's the way the world works. In 1989, Charles Taylor published a landmark book called Sources of the Self, The Making of the Modern Identity. In earlier writings, he'd challenged one of the major tenets of modern philosophy, the idea that human beings can be understood apart from their society, as isolated individuals. He stressed the things we have in common, our bodies, our languages, our cultures, all those things that make for a common world and a set of shared meanings. With Sources of the Self, he undertook to show how the modern individual had come into existence. What were the attractions of this identity? How and why had people withdrawn from the enchanted world of an earlier age? Now in his 80th year, Charles Taylor is a world-renowned philosopher. He's Professor Emeritus at McGill. He's been a distinguished visitor at institutions as far-flung as the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in New Delhi. He's the author of more than 20 books. In this Ideas series, David Cayley has been surveying Charles Taylor's thought. Today, in Part 4, he turns his attention to sources of the self. Here's David Cayley. Charles Taylor has described the territory in which he's been working for the last 50 years as philosophical anthropology. He's asked, in other words, what kind of critters are we from a philosophical point of view? The prevailing image when he began to study philosophy at Oxford in the early 1950s was of people more or less as brains on legs. Natural science was the paradigm of all knowledge. Philosophy was its handmaiden, checking and certifying the validity of its claims. But Taylor didn't see people this way, as detached, disembodied minds. He saw them as embedded in their worlds, their primary knowledge drawn from a common store of language, landscape, and culture. This approach had been explored by European philosophers like Edmund Husserl, Martin Heidegger, and Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who was Taylor's first inspiration, but it remained very much a minority view in the English-speaking world. At first, Taylor expressed his disagreement with the prevailing style in essays that argued with its concepts. Then, during the 1980s, he found a new way of addressing the modern identity. He would tell its story. How did we get from the enchanted world of the Middle Ages to the early modern society in which people were first imagined as sovereign egos, and from there to a world in which this identity is taken for granted? The result 
was his celebrated book, Sources of the Self. We talked about it during several days of conversation that I recorded at his home in the Laurentians in the fall of 2010. I asked him how he arrived at the more narrative approach to philosophy that he adopted for the first time in that book. When people get attracted to a certain way of understanding themselves, they get attracted to it because it has it fits with certain, if you like, values, ideals, and so on. But they always, we always understand our values and ideals contrastively. I mean, there's no virtue without vice. There's no brave person without there being, you know, cowardly possibilities and so on. So, and so you find that very often there is a, an implicit history and narrative in the very adopting of certain virtues. I mean, for instance, we all think that people were under the grip of magic or too simple explanations of the world, and now we're mature and we see things as they are and so on. See, Or we used to have a view of the universe where we were all so we were involved with it and saw it as the site of good and evil and higher and lower, and now we're disengaged from that and we see it as it really is, and therefore we're freer, etc. So you're always, you always have an implicit narrative. Or we grow up. I mean, we think what we are is growing up, that now, you know, then I believed in Santa Claus, or then I had these kind of reactions, but now I'm mature, I'm more in control, and I grew into this. So it's not possible in human life to have a description of what you're like right now at the moment, which doesn't have impacted in it and implied in it a great deal of narrativity that I got here because I you know, did this and I conquered that and so on. So in order to undo the simple acceptance, that's the way things are and that's the way things ought to be and so on, you have to challenge the narrative, you have to produce another narrative, which is in a way a kind of liberating narrative, if you, you know, want to, if you think that this particular grasp of things, way of looking at things is wrong, or in, in some ways is foreclosing very important human possibilities, which I do, then you have to, you're giving really not the first narrative, but a counter-narrative to an implicit narrative that's part of the common sense of the age. When you began to do philosophy in this way, it was around the time that people began to criticize and renounce what were called meta-narratives, or I think yeah, yeah. in the French, grand récit. Yeah. So we'll get beyond these yeah. big narrative arcs and which, yeah. by which everything will make sense to us. Yes. And you were, in a way, well, I mean, that swimming is, against the tide. But I mean, that's such a utopian idea, because... If you don't engage in overt conscious narrative, you're just prisoner and buying into these implicit narratives because it's impossible to understand where you're at at any one time without some sense of having got there and some sense of alternatives that have been set aside and so on. So we just don't understand each other. Uh, at all non-narratively. I mean, I can give a an account of myself or a human being at certain levels. I mean, you know, right now I am such six feet something high. I was okay, fine. That, that can be given as kind of instantaneous description. But if I say, well, now I'm you know I'm really in control of things, 
Well, that has implicit reference to, you know, what I've been through, what I've fought against, how I've got here. So the idea of doing without narratives altogether as against, that's not a good narrative, I can make it better, or, you know, I can, I want to challenge that because there's something wrong with it. That's a uh, coup d'épée dans l'eau, you see in French. I mean, <laughs> a sword thrust in the water. It, it's, <laughs> it's not... <laughs> It's not really doing anything. You're not liberating. You're not really liberating yourself. You're just pushing it back into, you know, the unconscious. In Sources of the Self, you're in search of what you call the modern identity. Yeah. But you're telling a story of ideas Yeah. in a certain way. So I wonder what you think, what is the relationship between ideas and practice? Mm -hmm. That yeah. is... I mean, people don't fall into what you call the default position by reading Descartes and thinking, oh, that must be right. I'll adopt that philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So what is this process of sedimentation yeah. or to, by which ideas become yeah. the actual way we live? It's very does hard. it begin yeah. with ideas, in no, your opinion? it doesn't. It's, but it doesn't begin with something else either. You see, that's the problem. We're, <laughs> in a way, Marxism has uh, done us all a disservice in this way, in this respect, that it uh, implies that there is a order of causation here. First reality and then, then the idea. But that can't be right because certain realities require certain self-understandings. I mean, certain practices in society require that people understand themselves in certain ways, right? So, okay, so then it looks, all right, okay, then we got to go back and make ideas primary. But on the other hand, these self-understandings really are very hard to get going unless the practices are somehow already there. Because, So it really is something that can't be, on which you can't say anything totally general, which starts. You can only have particular narrations which show in fine grain how the, this particular change you know, made that possible and then that made that possible. And you really find that the change in our understanding of ourselves and the change in our practices proceed together. Or if you like, a little change in the practice induces a change in self-understanding, which makes possible other practices, which entrenches other self-understandings. So plainly, if you take the Cartesian understanding of the world, it's very much bound up with, I mean, as I was saying earlier, you know, Descartes was taking off from the Galilean, in a sense also Baconian Galilean understanding, that the universe is just a lot of, you know, mechanistic stuff up there, out there, and... That is, that makes possible and desirable a stance of instrumental rational control, right? So Bacon talks about, you know, the sciences which are Belarusian type, which just present a beautiful, ordered whole, which make you feel, well, <laughs> I've got this understanding, as against sciences which are concerned with changing things, which are concerned with benefiting mankind. And Descartes in the Discours talks about we become maîtres et possesseurs de la nature, we become masters and possessors of nature. Okay, now here we have very powerful ethical idea in which we do all sorts of things. We become really, truly free. We become 
no more slaves to illusion, and we become beings who can actually reshape the world. So there's a sense of power, a sense of freedom, a sense of growing up and getting over illusions, which is built into this stance. Now, you could get a lot of this just reading Descartes and saying, wow, but what happens if you develop out of this a civilization in which there are all sorts of practices like you know, developing technology, uh, reorganizing society so that certain things don't happen, standing back from and challenging various orders that have come down to you from the past and saying, no, these don't work anymore. If a society develops in which the practices which, as it were, encapsulate that kind of value stance or ethical stance, become stronger and stronger, more and more pervasive. We're brought up in them. We find you know, that this is something that goes without saying in our daily lives, the way we're educated, the kind of jobs we get, and so on. Then this whole outlook can become something that seems you know, just obvious. That's the way it, we are. It's the way it ought to be, and so on. So the thinkers you recur to Descartes, Bacon, yeah. Hobbes are not initiating something. No. But they're in a certain way epitomizing. Yeah. Put it this way, the ones that really some of the ones that really stand out are ones that sense it coming. They're almost with prophetic insight in a certain way, can sense this coming as a possibility and they articulate it. And they help it then to to happen these changes of practice to happen. But of course, this doesn't become everybody's common sense until well after these changes have actually got in train and become the dominant practices, right? Then is when it just seems obvious to everybody. It's because, for all, most of us, it's because we're surrounded and immersed in certain practices that things will look this way. But there are the occasional figures who see that almost beforehand or when it's just at its very inception. You know, it's not totally an inception. He sees the practice of Galileo as a, as a scientist, right? And and certain changes are being made and certain things are being discussed, which, you know, which in the scientific community, Descartes, after all, in this tremendous web of correspondence, eh, with, with lots and lots of people in Europe at his time. I mean, really, the Republic of Letters is a reality then. It's an international, you know, world in which he's... Uh, so... Some things are in train, but these people leap ahead in a certain sense. The ones, some of the writers we we now consider important have leapt ahead. But that kind of thing isn't the common human condition, right? The common human condition is that we end up finding certain things obvious because we're totally involved and immersed in practices that make it seem that way. So, you know, what you need in a history is a very fine-grained story of this particular time. And there are no sort of beautiful generalizations about right. it. All, it's all caused by ideas or it's all caused by economic change and so on. Out of this complex of ideas and practices, Charles Taylor sees the modern self beginning to emerge during the period between the 16th and 18th centuries. Pre-modern accounts of what human beings are had always given humanity an archetypal significance of some kind. The Bible says we display the image of God. Other traditions speak in different terms, but the idea is always that we are made according to some pre-existing plan or purpose which does not lie in our own hands. 
The modern self, Taylor says, is more like a center of operations. Before, you might have said, well, what are you? I'm a, I'm a soul, or, you know, I'm, or the essence of me is uh, Atman, you know, a Sanskrit word, which actually, like a lot of words for soul in Psyche, refers back to breathing as, a, as its basic uh, etymological origin. But there's some kind of idea of what we are, what the, the, the nature, the substance of what we are. The wonderful thing about the I or the seek or the self is that it doesn't presume to name or describe the kind of substance we are. It really picks us out as beings who are capable of a kind of reflexivity, kind of radical reflexivity, where we can examine ourselves and make changes in ourselves and work on ourselves, right? It's that kind of power, this kind of, if you like, not a power which is, which resides in a particular substantial kind of agency, like a, you know, a mind, which is seen to be immaterial, but rather we're defining ourselves by this power, the power of self-reflexivity and self-change. So I, in connection with Locke, I talked about the notion of the punctual self. That is, it isn't identified with any of its substantive properties now because one of the things it can do is change these, look at these, alter them, develop new habits, you know, work on on the self. So I think we now have an understanding of ourselves through this particular range of, you might say, reflexive powers. This ability to change oneself was connected to the ability to change the world that developed in modern science. In pre-modern times, both people and things were signs. They expressed some greater meaning or purpose. They spoke of God or of the eternal forms of which earthly things are only shadows. Everything was proportioned to the whole. But this mighty harmony came under sharp satirical attack in the early 17th century by proponents of a new science, like Francis Bacon. Bacon, in a certain sense, articulates this very well. That's not explanation. You're just showing that the thing belongs to this lovely order, this whole that pleases you. But is that a criterion of truth? Surely the criterion of truth ought to be what you can do with it. What you can, what we would say today, the technology, technological use you can put this discovery to. So, Bacon has this wonderful way of rhetorically framing it. You have people who are interested in this beautiful sense of order, which they were put on the world to make sense of it, and they are actuated by pride. And then there are the people who want to be able to improve the condition of mankind by finding ways of you know, bringing about things in the world and are focused on these efficient causal connections. And they are actuated by charity, right? Because they're so, which side are you on <laughs> from a Christian point of view? No, prior to charity, it's very clear that you need to have this quite different approach to science. And that approach then comes to be intellectually tremendously convincing because it produces payoffs of all kinds, right? I mean, intellectual payoffs, first of all, right? We can make sense of things. And everything that happens after that 
of almost everything, strengthens that. So that this natural science comes to be tremendous proof, kind of proof positive this is the way to go. In the new mechanical philosophy of men like Bacon, Descartes, Galileo, nature was, as German sociologist Max Weber said, disenchanted. It was matter in motion, nothing more. And this view of things was one of the pathways leading to what Charles Taylor calls the buffered self. People could stand back from the world and become, in Descartes' words, possessors of nature because they no longer had the same fear that they themselves might be possessed. When nature was alive and teeming with spirits, Taylor says, people could not so easily distinguish themselves from their surroundings. They remained, in his lingo, porous selves. There isn't this very clear boundary between what's going on in me and what's going on outside that I can be deeply affected by something happening outside of me in a way that we, we still actually, as a way of making this clear, we still recognize something like this. You walk into a room, you're in a bad mood, and they're having a wonderful party. Now, of course, you could make you even in a worse mood, but very often you find your spirits lifted. So such a thing as the kind of atmosphere of the party is something we recognize. You can't, you can't keep it out. It sort of you, it invades you. It takes you over. Well, imagine a view of the universe, which is what the view of the universe is enchanted, where there are powers of this kind in things or in spirits of the woods or in things like relics, right, that, that, that emanate a certain power and can, in a certain sense, take you over and change you because there's no way of stopping it. It's the way the world works. So you get this extraordinary expression, melancholy, which I think is a very good way of uh, example. And the way it was used in pre-modern period, it wasn't a cause of feeling that kind of notion of the world as dark and so on. It wasn't a cause of that. It was that power. It's different from, you know, you say if you take too much drink, so you're going to feel blue, right? When you wake up in the morning, your body chemistry is going to push you in a, in a blue direction. It wasn't the kind of causal relation. It was you are in the domain of melancholy. So it leads to a quite different stance to the body when you think of it. Supposing I wake up, oh, it's terrible, oh, God. I say, well, look, you, know, you had these 25 glasses of wine last night. What do you expect? And, and immediately, I mean, possibly, my spirits can lift. Well, it's just that. I mean, it, you know, I now think that there's no use in life, and, and but it's not really that I think that or that I have any basis to think that. It's just that I'm being made blue by all this stuff. So I'll take an egg or whatever it is and feel better. But if you have the similar type of feelings in the 70th century and people say you have a melancholy, wow, that means I'm in the grip of the real thing. I mean, there's no, no way you can resist that by saying, well, it's just my body. It's just something induced by my body chemistry. Okay, so you get this, it's difficult to get people back to the earlier way of understanding. You get this notion of the mind, or myself, you know, my power to concentrate is something which 
in principle, doesn't need to be affected by what goes on outside. It might be, but then I can offset that by saying, well, it's just my, you know, I'm just tired. That's why I'm saying that. Or even it can work the other way too. You know, I'm just feeling optimistic because I took this drug. But it's not really me or something that I can really, I really have to accept. And that stance is what I want to call the buffer itself. It's got a, so there's a buffer around me and my capacity to, to determine my mood, which can, I mean, the boundary can be causally crossed by forces from outside, but I can say, well, that's not really me. That's something else. I don't need to panic about that. And this is the conception of the buffer itself, which we now live in. Now, what is that doing for people? Well, in a certain sense, there you can see in all sorts of ways how getting out of the enchanted world into the buffer itself, you have a sense of liberation, of invulnerability. I mean, think what it would be, what it is still in some cultures, to be in a world in which you can be possessed by spirits, for instance. You know, the spirits that surround you can possess you. And this that there can be rituals which make this benign or controlled. But it's also a terrifying vulnerability, which human beings get over when they see the world, finally, as disenchanted, as not having those spirits, not containing those powers. So there's a sense of invulnerability, a sense also of power a sense of freedom, a sense of self-control, all these things together, which again fit in with the, the sense of value and excellence and virtue which you see underlying the Cartesian revolution. Why the Cartesian revolution is going to appeal to people the same if the main relation to the world is one of instrumental reason controlling it, then that's fine. That's the kind of power. That is a kind of Freedom, that is a kind of, I'm captain of my soul. That's very much the, the modern stance, a modern stance. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 137. Today's program continues a series on the thought of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. It's presented by David Cayley. In the move from a porous to a buffered self, power and the ability to act are relocated. They move from the outside to the inside, in what Charles Taylor calls the Cartesian Revolution, for example, knowledge is no longer our direct, unmediated experience of a world which is part of us and of which we are a part. It is something we make within ourselves. The things that make the world vivid to us, its color, its smell, its taste, are, according to both Galileo and Descartes, secondary qualities. These qualities are constructed by the mind. Things in themselves possess only number, mass, extension, the primary qualities. Protestants reinterpreted their society's central religious ritual, 
the communion meal of bread and wine in much the same way. The church had taught the doctrine of transubstantiation, which held that Christ is actually and physically present in the Mass. The Protestant reformers, for the most part, insisted that Christ's presence was an inner experience of the believer, not an actual change undergone by the bread and wine. This emphasis on interiority characterizes all forms of modern enlightenment, a state defined by Immanuel Kant in 1784 as, I'm quoting, mankind's final coming of age the emancipation of human consciousness from an immature state of ignorance and error, end quote. But enlightenment, in Taylor's view, came in two very different versions. Enlightenment one, as he has sometimes called it, was the tradition stemming from Descartes which emphasized detachment, control, self-possession. But it was soon answered by enlightenment two, which puts the accent on self-expression and the longing for reunion with nature and society. It's sometimes called Romanticism, and one of its key figures, for Taylor, is Johann Gottfried von Herder, a German philosopher, poet, and critic who lived in the second half of the 18th century. Both forms of enlightenment are modern in their stress on freedom, individuality, and inwardness, but the second takes a very different view of the human person. This romantic shift has introduced the notion of another kind of individualism, if you like, expressive individualism. I mean, where the mainstream enlightenment, if you like, did have a very powerful notion of the individual as a center of desire and therefore control ideally over his or her own life in order to fulfill these desires and as a source of decision whether to accept or not a certain society, you get the expressive individualism of someone like Herder, the idea that every human being has their own way of being human and that they should be able to express this. But then this immediately goes along with the sense that human beings only can do this within societies within cultures, right? So then we also get the notion that every culture is different and needs to have its own integrity. So you get a playing out of certain themes of freedom, some kind of individualism, but also in a different view of what the social bond is like, in a different view of what we are trying to work out when we're working out our own way of being, where issues like the sources of inspiration become very important, right? So it's a it really turns out to be an alternative reading, in some sense, of this modernity, term for term, reinterpreting the key, the key words, the key ideas of the, of the mainstream enlightenment. It's therefore, uh, we shouldn't say counter-enlightenment, because that would mean it was against it. It's an alternative enlightenment reading that we see operating. In other words, it's something that you couldn't have if you went back. If you went back, you wouldn't have any idea of the individual's own nature and inspiration and so on. If you went back, you wouldn't have the same idea of the, so, of the social bond because it would be all rooted in some cosmic order. But it's an alternative way of understanding this modern condition. These two ways of understanding the modern condition are distinctive and, in theory, easily separated. But in practice, Charles Taylor says, 
they are often mixed within modern people. Like Karl Marx's famous sketch of the liberated man who hunts in the morning, rears cattle in the evening, and criticizes after dinner, we can be romantics and then calculating utilitarians by turns. These two stances are still battling it out in our culture. And we're all a little bit cross-pressured. We're all a little bit pulled in different directions. And in their contexts, I mean, the same person can in one context read something about how, well, we're going to control the universe and nature and maybe even control, change human life and, and become more X or Y or Z. Wow, terrific. And then the same person can get a sense that, but look, uh, when I walk outside of the city and go into nature, there's something really beautiful about this and it's blooming for me and so on. And that's something that shouldn't be touched. And then the moment comes when these two attitudes clash. Then suddenly, the same person can be really very deeply cross-pressured. Here you see, the two sides, the two ways of understanding human life are now coming into direct conflict. And you see that as a permanent, inevitable... It's difficult to imagine. Well, I mean, it's always difficult to imagine fundamental change. I mean, if somebody had described this world in the 17th century, they would have said, you're crazy. You know, So something might happen. But I don't see a way in which these two sides are so powerful in us in virtue of the way we come to understand ourselves. I don't see there being a total overcoming of one by the other. People write dystopias about this, if you like, technological stance becoming totally dominant, but you know, I can't see human beings really buying that. On the other hand, can you imagine that the, if you like, romantic stance becomes totally dominant? Well, no, because there's just much too much temptation to take the technological route. So I don't see us leaping out of this cross-pressure. I see any particular individual can finally make his or her stance, right, very clearly. That can happen. But that we all agree in making a clear stance is very, very unlikely. Modern persons, Charles Taylor says, are cross-pressured. We adopt different stances in different circumstances, live with the contradictions, and go on choosing from case to case. The things we're talking about now, the stances we're talking about now, are up for grabs for everybody all the time. I mean, we can look at the world in this, <clears throat> if you like, let's call it ecological way or the technological way, and every, for a lot of people, every fresh context and decision oh, raises that question. What do we do with this forest? Do we preserve it or do we say, well, I mean, there's lots of others, so let's go ahead. And... I can be uncertain about that and have to choose about that and then have to choose all over again with the next issue and so on. So we're dealing with alternative possibilities which are in a very intimate sense alternative possibilities for everybody all the time. So it's um, this kind of conflict within us is a set of alternatives that are not located in one way of life or another but there are facing us all the time within our way of life, although we can decide to adopt an ideological strong stance, always to go for one or always to go for the other.
In Charles Taylor's view, modernity means not having a single unified way of life, but rather a sometimes volatile, sometimes conflicted mixture of different ways. He himself, by taste and inspiration, inclines more to the romantic view of the world. But part of his distinctiveness as a thinker has lain in his moderation, his reluctance to polarize the different accounts of modernity and pit them against one another. The disengaged identity is far from being simply wrong, he has written. And besides, he adds, we are all too deeply imbued with it to be able really and authentically to repudiate it. He argued for this more nuanced approach in his 1991 Massey Lectures, The Malaise of Modernity. In those lectures, he deplored the polarized debate between the rival camps that he characterized as boosters and knockers, the boosters being those who see only modernity's gains, the knockers those entirely given over to lamenting its losses. In his opinion, both miss the boat. There are these two sides to the modern identity, two like solicitations, two ways it's tempted to go, and we can't really just dump either. And what happens when the debate gets hot is that each side accuses the other of its you know worst <laughs> mindless form, so that the the instrumentalists say to the romantics, "Now oh, you're just nostalgic. You want to go back to the Middle Ages." And they close the issue that I mean, so, because no one wants to go back to the Middle Ages, really. Ball game over. And the other side says, you know, all you're interested in is control, and that's totally destructive. So it each sounds as though, in that heated debate, as though they want to make the instrumentalists or individualists dance total, or they want to do away with it altogether. And when the argument gets like that, then we're really blinded to the actual situation, which is that we are in a world where both of these possibilities are there for us, are important for us in certain cases and not in others, but we're really torn to decide exactly in which cases and in which others to go with each of these. Right? And that's the, the real situation, which we can discuss uh, intelligently, calmly, argue with each other and so on, and which gets obfuscated when the heavy rhetoric comes in. And I find people react to my books that way. They say, oh, heavy overlay of nostalgia in your book and so on. You know, the greatest mind of the 13th century. <laughs> the heavy implication is that you, you belong somewhere, you know, back then. You, know, you would really have been <laughs> at home back then. But here, now, you know, you're totally out of place. No, I mean, I get that all the time. In Sources of the Self, and again in the more compact The Malaise of Modernity, Charles Taylor tries to show the modern identity as it has evolved over centuries. The process was gradual, and for him remains almost by definition unfinished. He has resisted the idea of postmodernism with its implicit claim that modernity is over because he sees it as a cop-out, a facile attempt to cancel the modern condition rather than to face up to its challenges. He wants not to abandon modernity, he says in Sources of the Self, but rather to encourage what he calls the retrieval 
of modernity's moral promise. Charles Taylor continued his efforts to bring the modern age into clearer focus in the books that came after Sources of the Self. In 2004, he published Modern Social Imaginaries, another probe of what he called the number one problem of modern social science, modernity itself. The work investigated a question that he had been reflecting on for decades. What holds societies together and allows them to function more or less cooperatively, especially modern societies with their strong emphasis on the individual? He found the principle of this coherence in what he called the social imaginary. By that, I meant the ways in which we together, in common, imagine our common life. This is kind of the social has two uses in this expression. It's a social imagination about society. And more particularly, what I want to zero in on is the kind of common understanding we have to have for our institutions and practices actually to work, to make the sense that they do. So the case that I often take is that we find it normal that we make collective decisions by people, you know, thinking of democratic elections by certain groups taking very often very opposed positions and slinging mud at each other. You know, my opponent is going to wreck the country if you give him the, etc. And then we have a lot of individual decisions made in the, elect- in the election booth, and we take the result as a valid result. I mean, valid, legally valid, binding on a result. Now, in a lot of societies in history, this would be thought is inconceivable. I mean, much earlier, more intimate societies, you find decision process where everyone talks around and talks around and talks around until they feel there's some kind of consensus emerging, and then somebody begins to articulate it, and everyone jumps on board. So they have a sense that the unity of society would be totally fractured if people took hard positions right at the very beginning, said, no, I've got to be this, and, and then fought it out. So how do, what do you have to understand in the way of your relation to others in society, of how they work and so on, and understand together, everybody, in order for this kind of procedure to amount to, to be considered you know, equivalent to, count as a collective, a valid collective decision. And you have to have this tremendous change in your sense of what society is, how we're related to each other, and so on and so on. Or again, think of a modern demonstration. I mean, it's very interesting and very knife edge. On one level, it feels like a revolution. Right? People are out in the streets, and they're screaming, and they're shouting, the government is a bunch of you know hooligans, and away with the whatever it is. But it is meant to be, in the end, a powerful speech act, right? That we really, and we're lots of us, look around, we're lots of us, we really feel strongly about the cuts. You know, you've got to roll back the cuts. 
And so it has to be kept on the knife edge. And it's constantly in danger because there are sometimes fringe groups that are like, you know, <laughs> have their own say. So they end up smashing all the cars or you know, busting the windows or burning the cars. And the organizers are at their wits end and very angry because their speech act is being ruined. Because it's meant to be a speech act addressed to others who are not going to be coerced in that way, but are going to be just very powerfully impressed. But this takes a whole long cultural historical development to have something that's that mm, subtly poised on the knife edge between feigned violence and actually counting as an as a intervention in a, a public discussion. And of course, you find in many cases in societies where they aren't used to this, it, it you know just goes right over the boundary and ends up as a violent act. So we managed to run this kind of thing because there's some kind of subtle common understanding that, um, you know, this is how far you can go. A demonstration can be understood as a social statement or an election as a binding decision, Charles Taylor says, only where there is some deeper underlying agreement on what constitutes a society in the first place. In Modern Social Imaginaries, he examines three defining features of Western modernity. Popular sovereignty, an economy that obeys its own laws, and a public sphere. And he shows how a new imaginary was necessary before any of these ideas could make sense. Economy, for instance, was a term that completely changed its meaning during the course of the 18th century. It was coined by Aristotle to mean household management. So the, the oikos is the household, and the nomos is the law. And oikonomia is the law that the householder imparts to, I mean, the structure he imparts to his farm. Here are the pigs, there are the cows, etc. Now it becomes, in the 18th century, a new sense. Oikonomia, first of all, they call it political economy because they're talking about the whole society seen as a household writ large. And so you have political economy where the kings, you know, under various kinds of mercantilist legislation were trying to do the same thing as the householder did in the household, trying to manage it. But the new meaning that comes up with the physiocrats and Adam Smith is the idea of where the nomos here is the law in the sense not of what I impose on things, but in the sense like Newton's laws of motion, right? They're kind of impersonal laws of motion that govern the economy in the modern sense, where each one of us acts for himself or herself, and it concatenates according to these laws of motion. And that's what it means to us today. The plausibility of the idea that countless private decisions can combine or concatenate to produce a distinct and lawful domain called an economy depends on a pre-existing social imaginary. For the idea to make sense, there must be a distinction between state and society, a sense of the inherent dignity of economic activities, a belief that a society of mutual benefit is part of a providential design, and a certain conception of law. These ideas, and their corresponding practices, must go through a long gestation before Adam Smith can feel confident that an invisible hand will conjure the common good out of a multitude of private interests. The same is true of popular sovereignty 
and the public sphere. The term public opinion made what might at first glance seem a sudden first appearance in the 18th century. But new ideas about who constitutes the public and how a public is made had been percolating through European society since the 16th century. Recognizing the part played by the social imaginary in producing Western modernity, Charles Taylor says, can also shed light on the way other societies and cultures are modernizing. It has been clear for some time that there are what Taylor and others call multiple modernities, ways of life that are recognizably modern but quite unlike Western modernity. And this contradicts a key axiom of social theory in the decades after the Second World War, the idea that modernization, or development, always follows the same bright path to the same shining city. The idea of what modernity is in Western social science, history, and so on, is is a single process. So a single process in which uh, humanity sloughs off earlier forms of society, maybe becomes more secular in some variants, uh, becomes more aware of individualism, uh, introduces rights, becomes capable of using technology, and so on and so on. And this is a single process which everyone is going to go through, we hope, in the end. No one's going to be left behind. So that history or the world in history represents this big caravan in which the Western society gets first to the end of the road, but the others are still trudging along, and then the others will trudge along and do exactly the same thing. And it always appeared to a number of people, including myself, I'm very much of this view, that that's not how it actually works. How it actually works is illuminated by the idea of the social imaginary. Modernization does have common features, but the ways in which they are expressed will vary with the social imaginary. The practice of democracy in India is an example, and one that Taylor has gotten to know well over the years through his association with the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in New Delhi. India is, in some ways, one of the most successful democracies. Everyone thought at the time of the, you know, Mrs. Gandhi's emergency that, oh, another one of those societies is heading towards um, overturning its democratic institutions. But no, on the contrary, every decade that goes by, and you take polls in India, the attachment of the Indian voter to this structure, to the ability to say no, the ability to throw the rascals out, and so on, it gets stronger and stronger. So you get these absolutely weird phenomena which don't make any sense in terms of Western political science. We take it as axiomatic that the more educated you are and the richer you are, the higher the percentage of voting turning out to the polls. In India, it's exactly the reverse. That is, people who are low caste and very poor vote more, a higher proportion, than people who are upper caste and middle class and living in Delhi. Right? So it's a different dynamic going on here. It's, it's strikingly similar institutions. They even have something that you know, looks exactly like the House of Commons <laughs> and parliamentary. But these institutions have been filled with another kind of political dynamic. And that you can only understand if you 
then start looking back into Indian history and don't consider all that as something you just they just have to get over, leave behind them. It's still there. It's transformed as we've transformed our past, but it become by when it's transformed, it becomes something different from what we have brought about. So. The notion of multiple modernities becomes absolutely unavoidable idea today. Not everybody has realized this. You know, they still have to, you have to, the White House and the Pentagon and so on still have to understand that this is where it's at, but this is undoubtedly where it's at. And nobody who has real intellectual savvy now is really totally defending the old positions. Charles Taylor's Modern Social Imaginaries was published in 2004. The book was well able to stand by itself, but it was in fact just one piece of a much larger work in progress. This larger work, called A Secular Age, appeared three years later, in 2007, to wide acclaim. Like sources of the self, it ranged over the whole of Western modernity in pursuit of an answer to the deceptively simple question with which the book begins. What does it mean to say that we live in a secular age? That will be my topic tomorrow at this time, when I'll conclude my series on the thought of Charles Taylor. On Ideas, you've listened to Part 4 of The Malaise of Modernity, Charles Taylor in Conversation. The series concludes tomorrow at this time. Each show will be available as a podcast after its broadcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Or it can be streamed from our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out about upcoming programs. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Our webmaster is Liz Nage. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next.